0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, The Voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI. Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you ever so much, Walter, for all the good songwriting and musical work you do in the world. WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. Thank you to Bean Dial for managing WPVM-FM. We wouldn't be able to do these shows and broadcast them everywhere if you didn't show up and help us hold it all together. So, Devine Dial. thank you. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always email me through my website, jamesnave.com. N-A-V-E is how you spell Nave. And if you'd like to join me on Saturday mornings for a writing gathering with a group of great people from lots of different places throughout the world, ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to do that. We laugh a lot, tell some jokes, actually get some rather good creative work done. It's it's a wonderful thing. ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to be part of that. As you know, if you've been listening to this show, I often have guests on, and also occasionally I go solo, which is the case today. And when I'm solo, my guest is you. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I appreciate it so much. One of the things I'd love to do in these solo shows is just let it unfold as I talk. Let the images come up, let the thoughts emerge, and let the stories form themselves as I move through this conversation with you. I'm here today recording this show in Asheville, North Carolina. I have been staying in Taos New Mexico, Northern New Mexico for the last year and a half. This is my first trip out. My trips to date have been from my Airbnb, which is now my art studio down to the grocery store, Sid's Grocery Store in Taos, to the post office and to Smith's to buy some things at that grocery store, turn around, come back, settle in, and continue to work, often working on these shows, editing my my conversations that I've had with people all over the world. Today, I have ventured out. I left Taos a week ago on Monday, drove straight through, say, for a quick overnight stop, and arrived in Asheville the next day, Tuesday, October the 5th. In my previous solo shows, I've often walked the rim road, taking a little trip, hour out, hour back, and just continuing to talk as I walked, pointing out the magpies and maybe saying hello to someone passing by on the road, perhaps a car or two goes by as well. So every time I do a solo show like this, I often will bring in movement, one kind or another. Of course, how can you avoid movement? Everything around us moves. The earth spins, the universe pulses, our bodies function with breath and all of our senses. The blood flows through our veins. So movement is such a deep part of of all, all we do, regardless of whether we think think we're moving or not, often sitting still is as full of as much movement as moving around, running the marathon. And what I'm doing now is full of movement. I'm composing this as I go. And it's really great fun because I absolutely am uncertain really about where it will go next. I will tell you upon my arrival to Asheville, the station manager, Devine Dial, the woman who allows us to make this show happen and allows us to be as creative as we want to be. And I say us, I'm talking about the contributors to WPVM FM. And these contributors make all different kinds of shows, many of them as I've often said or broadcast on other community radio stations. So Devine said, well, when you come to Asheville, you can use my Airbnb. So that's exactly what I did. I came to Asheville, knocked on the door, she handed me the key and said, here's here's your room. has a little desk, has a nice bed, thick blanket. It's now getting cold. It's cool here in Asheville right now. And when I left house, I left on a clear morning. It was cold, actually, in Taos. And the next day, some of my friends from Taos reported that it had snowed. So fall is here, summer's gone, and we're moving toward winter. Again, movement. Even if you're sitting still, you're moving. Now, the reason I came to Asheville was because Jennifer Pickering, who runs the leaf global arts organization and produces a festival called the leaf festival invited me to come back to asheville and host the poetry slam at the leaf festival again if you've listened to this show you know i have many writers and poets who pop up in a conversation with me and i've always enjoyed what they have to say and i've been greatly rewarded with my membership, if you will, in the poetry community over many, many, many years. So when I say Jennifer invited me to come back and host the Poetry Slam at the Leaf Festival, I have to also mention over 25 years ago, Jennifer invited me to host the first Poetry Slam at the Leaf Festival, which I did. And the reason I hosted the Poetry Slam at the Leaf Festival 25 years ago was because the poetry slam scene in Asheville, which we've talked a lot about on this show, the poetry slam scene in Asheville was as vital as any scene in America. Many, many performance poets from all over the country would often travel through Asheville, do a feature get a big audience, get lots of recognition, enjoy themselves tremendously, and move on. Here we are back to movement. The planet was spinning then as it is spinning now. And so I was part of that community. And so when Jennifer and I sat down on a little grassy knoll on a warm afternoon, and she told me she was going to produce this festival, and she was going to name it the Lake Eden Arts Festival, I said, well, why don't you shorten Lake Eden Arts Festival to LEAF? And you're going to be doing it in the spring and in the fall. And the leaves change in the fall and fall off the trees go into the wintertime, and then in the spring they come back and emerge again. So if you call it the Leaf Festival, you will imply the the cycles of the seasons. And she liked that idea, and so did I, so it became the Leaf Festival. And I invited the poets to come out in 1995 when we did the first Leaf Festival, and, and they did a poetry slam. And now, all these years later, we're still at it, and the poets are still holding forth. It's been a little bit over 25 years since we held the first leaf festival including the poetry slam and so now upon my arrival in Asheville Jennifer actually invited me to return to Asheville and host the the 50th live poetry slam actually the 53rd poetry slam because fortunately we were able to keep the momentum going on zoom during the pandemic close down time so this was my 50th Live Slam on the Leaf stage. Although for uh, a funny kind of humorous reason, Jennifer and crew decided to call this Leaf Festival 49.5. And the reason why is because they're planning a much bigger celebration next year for the 50th Leaf Festival. So they want to to build up a little momentum. So even though I've been on stage 50 times, hosting the poetry slam live we were really forty nine point five but math matters on one level and yet art also comes into play and thus we had the forty nine point five or the 49th point five leaf festival kind of reminds you of the platform in the harry potter book nine and a half you have to duck down in order to wait for the train and then once you get on the harry potter train to go to hogwarts uh everything opens up and that's a bit like it is at the leaf festival it's also like it is in the in the world of the of the poets the world of poetic thinking if you listen to a previous show I just did with Paul Devlin. I talked a lot about the Poetry Slam in that show because Paul made a film that was also made in 1996, around the time we were beginning the Leaf Slam, and the film was called Slam Nation. It's all about the evolution of of the Poetry Slam. And a quick mention for those of you who may have missed this in one of my previous shows, Slam poetry slam the slam they call it isn't about throwing your opponent on the stage the poor poet flying through the air and the other poet jumping up and down like in the in the the wrestling matches you see on tv which are actually staged and fake the slam means can you connect so well emotionally to the piece, reading it however you please, so the audience responds the same way that a stadium full of baseball fans would respond? At the bottom of the ninth inning in the World Series, the score is 4-1. to one. The bases are loaded. One more pitch to go. Two strikes on the batter. The pitcher winds up, throws the ball, and the home team batter hits a home run and drives all four runs in, and they win the series 5-4. to four. What happens to the stadium? The crowd goes wild and everybody cheers, and the baseball players jump up and down and pat each other on the backs and spew champagne, etc., etc. So, in the Poetry Slam, the idea behind Slam is can you connect so well emotionally so that the poetry audience responds the same way the hometown team fans respond when? The ball goes out of the park, and they win the World Series. And the truth is, yeah, you can do that. And you don't have to shout. You can do it quietly, or you can do it in a, in a loud voice, however you please. But you can connect like that. And that's what SLAM is all about. And if that little baseball story sounded a tad familiar, you may have been thinking about Ernest Lawrence Thayer's Casey at the Bat, of uh, the great poem about baseball. And if you know that poem, you know Casey struck out, unlike the slampoids who actually sometimes do hit it out of the park, and of course occasionally it happens in the World Series too. Casey struck out because he experienced a bad case of hubris. He walked up to the plate, he was certain that he would win the game, and in fact he was so certain of winning the game that he let the first two balls go by and... It didn't matter he knew he was going to hit that last pitch and knock the ball out of the park and and win the game because there were enough batters on the on the plate to to move them around and, and, and get the right score that he needed so of course the pitcher grinds the ball into his hip and winds up and throws and casey swings and he misses and mighty casey strikes out and of course that was to the chagrin of the entire stadium and the Ball game was lost to the other side. So Casey, self conscious, self aware, wanting to impress, stepped up to the plate, confident that he would hit, but he swung and missed. And that, my friends, is the hubris of Casey, which is what the slam poets on the slam stage try to avoid doing. And when they do connect emotionally, the audience feels it. So now you know where the term slam came from and I I like telling people that because I do love the idea of dispelling the notion that when poets are together doing that kind of work, they're competing and throwing each other around. What the poets are actually doing in these venues, like the Leaf Slam that I hosted on Saturday night, poets are just gathering together together. To, to do the poems, to interact, to hear each other speak whatever truth they happen to have on their mind, whatever truth the poem happens to offer up. Now, the Leaf Slam is not any different than any of the other slams that you've seen over the years. If you had an opportunity to take a look at one, it's very easy if you don't know the way it works. Uh, I choose five judges from the audience, arbitrarily choosing them. The requirement? What's the requirement? Well, they have to be willing to stay for the show and they don't even have to know anything about poetry or spoken word or storytelling. They just have to have a bit of enthusiasm and be willing to Score the poems zero to ten like a diving match, or sco- score the poets zero to ten like a diving match, and and that's what I did on Saturday night. I I picked the the judges, and and they were all very happy to participate, and we stood on the stage, and we went through two and a half hours of very fast zippy poetry performance work. We had seven poets, and they were all champions, really. All had competed on the national level. Everyone knew what they were doing. Everyone knew how to throw down their work and really get into the groove. All of that worked really, really well, and the audience applauded. Now, COVID-19 is upon us. This is the first time I've had an experience out in, in public. LEAF required everyone to be vaccinated. I've been vaccinated. I'm getting my booster vaccination. I did a show a few weeks ago, maybe three months now, about why I got my vaccination, and I still stand on those reasons. I got my vaccination because I was afraid of COVID, because I've always gotten my vaccinations, and I have been getting my vaccination since I got my first vaccination, which was really a sugar cube for polio. So the leaf Festival required vaccinations or proof you were COVID negative. So everybody presented their cards, and then we all gathered. There was a masking requirement. I will say that some people were more rigorous around their masks than other people. I have to tell you, I was a little nervous. I haven't been out much in the last year and a half. So seeing the people in the crowds and trying to keep my mask on and all of the rest was... It was a bit of a of a challenge, really, so we did gather, and we did a two and a half hour poetry slam, and it was really, really great. The improv round was wonderful we had four poets in the improv round. We had whittled down the poets to the top four, and each poet had an improv topic, and and somehow the poets managed to weave the improv topic, the first improv topic, the second one, and the third one all together. So by the time the fourth poet got up, the fourth poet used all four improv topics. So that was a sight to behold. And at the end of the night, uh, Curtis Levon won the poetry slam, and Curtis Levon won $1,000. He took home a thousand bucks for his effort, and the rest of the poets actually ended up with some money as well because we took up a collection, and we ended up with over five hundred dollars raised. Five hundred dollars and maybe five or. 10 minutes at the most, and people contributed. It was a little bit like passing the church collection plate, and we divvied up the cash amongst the poets, and, and everybody went home with a little bit of money in their pocket and a lot of satisfaction around the poetry slam. When I gather with the poets, it makes me feel like I'm at home, and home is an interesting concept especially now during this disruptive time of COVID and all the political disruption that's going on in this country and the political disruption going on around the world. And maybe the political disruption has always been there. After all, human beings are political creatures, small p-politics, not like the politics in Washington or other capitals around the world, just the small p-politics of people interacting together and you have embracing and you have love and you also have conflict and all of the rest of the emotions that overlap. Our species and create all of this what we call craziness, brouhaha, uncertainty. But it also creates a lot of camaraderie. It creates a great deal of coming together, of of connection, of of caring, and that's what it was like at the slam on Saturday night. Plus, that's what LEAF is all about anyway, connection, caring, bringing people together, finding commonality rather than things that are, are separated. But we have a big world, and these kinds of things have been going on for a long, long, long time. And like I said, I think of home a lot because I grew up in western North Carolina, and before I grew up in Asheville. And My mother would always say to me when I was a boy, you are a part of all that you have met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that a traveled world whose margin fades forever and forever as you move. Which is a quote from Alfred Lord Tennyson's Ulysses, and if you've listened to this show, you know I've offered that quote many times in the last five years. I come back to it because it's something that I cherish, and it's very true. The margins do fade forever and forever as we move. So no matter how far you go in the sea, you still have the horizon, and it's still the same distance, even though the experiences that you maybe have had in between contemplating the horizon have been magnified, multitudes of experiences, whatever's gone on in between those times. So. Ulysses said, you are a part of all that you have met. And indeed, we are a part of all that we have met. Now, I do bring up the slam. As I said very often, I bring up poetry quite a bit in this show because it's dear to me. It's done a lot for me over the years. And you may be wondering, well, fine for that guy. That's good. I'm glad he knows all about that. But why would it matter to me? What what does all of this talk of high-minded poetry have to do with anything? Well, it does matter to you because poetry is about storytelling. Poetry is about language. Poetry is about actually sending wonderful messages out to to the world, and sometimes the messages can be very simple, like Ogden Nash's poem, The Termite Knocked Upon the Wood, tasted it and found it good, and that is why your auntie May fell through the parlor floor today. Or Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. These are nursery rhymes, or that's the Ogden Nash poem about the the termite. So how... Does one get involved in a community like the, the poets? How did I end up hosting the Leaf Poetry Slam? How how did I come to do that? What well, what led me to that? Well, I'd like to tell you that story because it's a simple story full of happenstance. And that's how we all come to these things. It's nothing grand, often it's just something that leads us from one beat to the next. That story started, as I said, when my mother quoted Ulysses, you are a part of all that you have met. Later in my life, when I would talk to my mother about that quote, I would say, well, yeah, maybe I'm a part of all that I've met, but you know, I'm falling apart from all that I've met. So it works both ways. We would laugh about that a bit she quoted that poem to me a lot and i came to think of poetry from that point of view and i had a grandmother who who graduated from meredith college in 1919 her name was roberta she was my mother's mother and roberta we called her roberta was a poet as well. She wrote little verse and even self-published a book way back in the 60s when self-publishing wasn't something people did. But she was determined to get her verse out and so she did and I helped her put that book together. I was the editor didn't really mean much, I just managed to put the pages together and somehow helped her with it, so it worked out rather well. But my grandmother was a poet, and she would often tell me fanciful stories about the gypsies roaming the mountains, and if I listened, I could hear their music. So I would listen for the gypsies singing in the trees. I never really heard the gypsies, but I did hear the night calls in the summertime, so that was good enough for me. I loved the summertime in the western North Carolina mountains and played and played and played and would often go visit Roberta and listen to her stories. And because Roberta was a poet, she instilled a bit of a soft spot in my heart, if you will, for poetry. That said, I never considered being a poet or writing poetry i was just a kid growing up having great fun playing in the woods and i did get a tiny bit of exposure to poetry by way of my mother and my grandmother that said growing up in western north carolina in the 50s you've likely heard more than one person reminisce about the old days and how much better they were I'm not so sure if I agree with that. Actually, I don't agree with that. When I was in my educational career, if you would like to call that in the 50s, I remember being in the 7th grade. School started in September, and my class, my 7th grade class, arrived in the classroom. And we had one classroom, which we stayed in from the beginning of September all the way through till May when school broke for summer, and we had one teacher, Mr. Ramsey, and Mr. Ramsey taught every subject. So every day we would show up at the seventh grade classroom and spend the whole day in the classroom, say for going outside for P.E. or to the gym for P.E. and down to the lunchroom for lunch. And after lunch, we would march back upstairs to the seventh grade classroom. The school was called Venable Elementary School, and I have to tell you, if you were casting a movie and looking for a good location, if you found this red brick school with a few classrooms in it and the gym and the lunchroom, you would cast it for a 1950s series for Netflix. It was fantastic from that point of view. That said, for those of you who are nostalgic for the 50s and other times when things were quote-unquote better in America, I have to tell you the educational approach was rather weak. And what I mean by that is Mr. Ramsey, my 7th grade teacher, in the science section of the, of the day stood in front of the class and this was 1959, and made a proclamation, I imagine some of the class believed it, likely most of the class, but he said with great authority that the space program America was engaged in then, and we already had some satellites floating around in the sky, and I remember as a boy standing out in the summertime, or even in the wintertime, we would look up and see the satellite floating overhead, and my father would say, that's a satellite, that's not a star. And you could tell it wasn't a star because the thing was zipping along rather fast. So America was fairly deep into the space program the day Mr. Ramsey, who was a tall man, had gray hair and a flat top haircut, stood in front of the class and pronounced with great certainty that there was no possible way America could land anyone on the moon. Moon landing was impossible. You could not do it. It would never be done. And, of course, he was addressing this because the idea of flying to the moon was in the headlines. And he was absolutely certain it could not happen, and he dug his feet. Heels in, and he was even self righteous about it and very proud. I was sitting there in the class thinking, This guy has no idea what he's talking about. Of course, as a good seventh grade student, I did not raise my hand and say, Mr. Ramsey, I think you're completely wrong. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Of course, people will land on the moon. How could they not? We already have satellites in the sky. I didn't do that. I just noted his commentary and realized at that point I disagreed with him. Perhaps you've had a Mr. Ramsey in your life. And if you do have a Mr. Ramsey memory in your life, you'll know that those little incremental incidences that happen along the way don't necessarily change you dramatically when they happen but they do accrue. They do mount up. In a sense, they're like cookie crumbs along the trail, leading you left or right or forward or wherever you end up going in in your life. And that's what that was with Mr. Ramsey. I suppose the satellites flying overhead were much more dramatic and I suspect now that I think back on the story, it has grown in my imagination. Probably the day that Mr. Ramsey said that, I just noted it and moved on and didn't give it a whole lot of thought. But somehow it stuck. It embedded itself in my psychology and now has become a a reference point for it stories like this one that you and I are sharing right now. So, Mr. Ramsey became part of all that I've met. And even though Mr. Ramsey's comment nudged me along, I can't say a whole lot for his teaching style, which didn't do all that much for my education. And the long and short of it, I went on through the 8th grade, through high school. Did okay in high school. I managed to graduate, and funny enough, I was able to somehow squeeze into a college, Brevard Junior College, on an academic probation. I have to say, I really didn't know how to be a student. So I went to Brevard College in Brevard, North Carolina for two years and had a Pretty good experience, but I have to say my grade point average was rather slim or low, if you will. So at the end of my two-year period, my grade point average was 1.7. You needed a 2.0, which was a C, to stay in. So they let me go after two years with my 1.7 average, and I had nowhere to go, really. And I will say that I was... A great candidate for the draft. I was in perfect condition, and I had no deferment. So the choice I made, which really may have been the beginning of what led me into poetry, the choice I made was to become a conscientious objector. And I applied for my conscientious objector status and was able to do alternate service at Wesley Nursing Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, for two years in lieu of going to Vietnam. And I'm to this day glad that i did that and one of the reasons i chose my direction as a conscientious objector was because of a buddy i met i've mentioned him many times on this show his name is john van hasselton john still lives in paris he's a photojournalist and when i met john he was one of the students at brevard college And unlike Mr. Ramsey, John was a curious character. He had climbed the Iger and he spoke many languages. And he was a rather dashing figure. And I was completely enthralled by the lifestyle John had lived. Even though we were young, I, I looked up to him. I thought, my goodness, there's a big world out there. You can be a part of all that you have met. And I was inspired by what john represented and somehow the idea of john climbing the eiger contrasted with mr Ramsay's nobody will ever land on the moon idea somehow worked in my psychology to give me the contrast i needed to frame the notion of doubt which was mr Ramsay with the notion of possibilities, which John offered with his image of climbing the Eiger or whatever mountain you wanted to climb. And I thought, you know, I want to climb the mountains. I think things are possible, rather than, well, nobody's ever going to land on the moon, or you can't do this, or you can't do that. I preferred rather, you can do this, you can do that. And so my association with John and some of the other people at Brevard Junior College inspired me to go in the direction of becoming a conscientious objector. Because in my bones I knew somehow I did not want to participate in the American war that was being waged in Vietnam. And I use the term American war being waged in Vietnam because many years later I got to know a poet named Ocean Vong, who's from Vietnam. and he corrected me when i said the vietnam war he said no it was the american war in vietnam we did not call it the vietnam war so i took ocean's note and now i refer to it as the american war in vietnam and to this day i'm glad i made the choice to go in the direction of being a conscientious objector and so here we are being back to a part of all that we have met And as I reflect back on it, my relationship with poetry was evolving like the rest of my life. So I wasn't sitting there writing poetry every day or even thinking about becoming a member of the poetry community. Even so, I was evolving poetically even though maybe I didn't even notice it. I've lately come to think that we all have poetic dispositions and I wonder if we all evolve poetically even if we never write anything down if you look at the sunrise and you go my goodness that's beautiful that's a poetic impulse that's a poetic thought and with each one of those thoughts you are in a sense evolving poetically after all how many people have you ever met who viewed a beautiful fall scene with the changing leaves and said oh god that's the ugliest thing i've ever laid my eyes on I don't know anybody that's ever done that. Every time I've ever stood with someone looking at a beautiful fall scene and the changing leaves, they say, my gosh, that is absolutely gorgeous. So that's poetic disposition. You have it, I have it, we all have it. It's one of the delights of being in the world. So back to being a part of all that we have met. I finished my conscientious objector service and I was 22 years old. And since I had more or less flunked out of Brevard College, I didn't feel confident enough to try to go back to school, so I did things like wait tables. I did little entrepreneurial businesses along the way, like opening a pizza restaurant called The Pizza Port in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, and then later... I moved up to Black Mountain, North Carolina and opened a hiking store called Appalachian Expeditions on Cherry Street. And I was in the t-shirt business, and I worked street fair selling t-shirts and other odds and ends at places like Bell Share Festival, which was in downtown Asheville for a long time. And so during my twenties, I didn't give poetry much thought, except occasionally in a conversation with my mother, when we would say we are a part of all that we have met and laugh about it. So it was in the background. Or put another way, it was bubbling in my subconscious mind. And when you think about it, often the thoughts that you have when the sun comes up or other delightful thoughts or poems that just haven't been written down yet. So with all that subconscious bubbling, I moved through my 20s and arrived in my 30s feeling a little inadequate because I'd flunked out of Brevard College. And I started to think, well, what if I went back to college? What if I was an adult returning student? What if I gave it another spin? would I flunk out a second time or would I succeed? So I decided to take another run at college, which I... Did when I was 31. I entered UNCA, University of North Carolina, at Asheville, and I had some credits which I could transfer from Brevard College. I did say I flunked out of Brevard College. That doesn't mean I failed all my classes. It just means my average fell below 2.0 because I was too busy running around, having a good time, experimenting with the world. I was inspired by John Van Hasselt's Iger climbing, and I wanted to do that too. So I really didn't actually fail. I just came at it from a different point of view. So when I came back to UNCA, I was determined to put my nose to the grindstone, really have an experience, an educational experience. So in order to get my college career started again, I had to enroll in some basic courses. And one of the courses I enrolled in was a Romantic Literature course, the British Poets. And I didn't know much about poetry. I actually didn't even think about my relationship with poetry when I enrolled in that course. I did it because it was required. And I thought, well, me. Yeah, Maybe poetry would be interesting. Maybe romantic literature would be interesting. I like the idea of of romance. And when you think about climbing the Eiger and all the dashing things that people can do, there's a lot of romance in that, the romance of the adventure. So I signed up for the class, and I showed up. In the classroom, I had my my Norton Anthology and my notebook, and I was ready to go. don't think I sat right on the front row, but I sat rather close to to the front. And this teacher walks in. Her name was Wilsonia Cherry. Had a bright smile. She had more enthusiasm for literature than I'd ever seen. She was one of those good teachers. Unlike Mr. Ramsey, who said, you'll never be able to land on the moon, Wilsonia Cherry had the idea that we could all go wherever we wanted to, and literature was one of the ways we could get there. So I attended the class and I took copious notes and wrote and followed what she had to say and listened. And I read and I tried to write the essays. And I was a little rusty, I admit, but I I threw myself into it. And so one day she came into class and she said, I'm going to read some poetry for you. And I was ready for it. And I knew I didn't know anything about poetry, but I was in the class and I was in college and an adult returning student ready to absorb the information. So she said, I'm going to read Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson and I was like, all right. Now I have to admit that I knew the quote, I'm a part of all that I've met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world, whose margin fades forever and forever as I move. Now, my mother, when she quoted it to me, changed the pronoun from I to you, and she would say you are a part of all that you have met. So I knew the quote, but I didn't actually know, I have to confess, I didn't know it came out of Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. So, well, Sonia Cherry starts reading this, this poem, and it, and it opens like this it little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I met in dole and equal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me, I cannot rest from travel, I will drink life to the lees. And it goes on from there. So Wilsonia was reading the poem, and I was following it along. And then she comes to the part where Ulysses is talking about uh, about his dreams and his travels. And then he says, as Wilsonia said that day, I am a part of all that I've met, yet all experience is an arch, where through gleams that untraveled world. And when Wilsonia Cherry read that line, I, I nearly fell out of my seat. I thought, my god. That that's what, that's what I heard when I was a little boy. Oh, oh. And then I knew where it came from. I thought, my goodness. I had a context. I had my line that I'd known as a child, and then I had the bigger story of the Ulysses myth, Ulysses traveling all over the world, looking for all the things that he was looking for, not any different than John climbing up the Eiger. And not any different than the people who landed on the moon. So after Wilsonia said the line, I am a part of all that I've met, yet all experience is an arch, Where through gleams that untraveled world, Whose margin fades forever and forever as I move. And she continued on. There lies the port. The vessels puff their sails. There gloom the dark, broad seas. My mariners, souls who have toiled and thought and wrought with me, That ever with a frolic welcome Took the thunder and the sunshine, And opposed free hearts, free foreheads. You and I are old, Old age hath yet his honor and his toil, Death closes all. But something ere the end, Some work of noble note, May yet be done, not unbecoming Ones who strove with gods. There lies the port, The vessel puffs their sails, There gloom the dark broad seas. Come, my friends, Tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds, to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be the gulfs will wash us down, it may be we'll touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. And so when Dr. Wilsonia Cherry finished with the last line, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield, I was rather undone. I sat there a bit shaken up, realizing there was a context for what my mother had been saying to me all my life. And that was the moment when I decided I was going to do something with poetry. I didn't know what it was, and I certainly didn't know how to write any poetry. I didn't even really feel that comfortable writing at the time, because I hadn't done it at all in my 20s. I'd been doing all these other things. So writing was not a discipline. It wasn't a practice. I was having hard enough time just writing the essays for my college credits. But I decided I, I'm gonna do something with this. So I finished the class, and I even think I might've walked up to Dr. Cherry and said, guess what? My mother quoted this to me when I was a boy, and I'm so excited to learn about this. I can't I can't believe it. I, I, I just am so thrilled. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And she smiled as a good teacher might smile and said, well, wonderful. I'm glad you had such a great experience. So I popped out the door and somewhere on my way out that door I thought I'm going to memorize Ulysses because I know that one line in the poem and I'll just memorize the rest of it. So that's exactly what I did. I went down to the office, asked the person working in the office if I could use the the copier. I put the book on the copying machine. I made three copies of Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, and I stapled the copies together. 72-line poem. I don't recommend your first run at memorization. I don't recommend a 72-line poem. It took me forever ever to do it i had no idea how to memorize i thought memorization was just sitting down and repeating the lines over and over again until somehow magically i remembered them i've since learned that it works a little different than that you don't actually memorize what you do is just associate yourself with the lines over and over and come up with all kinds of imagery. And eventually you will know it. And the easiest way to memorize is to, to never put a time frame on it. Just take your time and eventually somewhere down the line, you'll start to get more and more comfortable. And then at some point you'll have it. And then of course, once you have it, if you don't say it over and over again, it recedes in your imagination and you have to, to rehearse it a bit before you can bring it back out. So I sat down and spent, two or three months learning ulysses and once i finally had it i thought i was ready to go i asked a friend to 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 listen to me recite it and i sat down and started in and of course you may have already guessed what happened i completely forgot everything i was a complete muddle it was terrible i i just fumbled around so i discovered at that moment the idea of memorizing and then saying it exactly right was rather faulty. The actual discovery I made was there is a relationship you can have with words and you don't ever have to actually get it 100% right. It's a fluid, functioning, flowing relationship. So my first experience with spoken word and poetry, which would eventually lead to the slam, My first experience was memorizing Ulysses. Now, I will say that I had been inspired by the storytellers I'd seen a couple of years earlier at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Of course, these people were telling stories. Some were telling true stories about something that had happened somewhere along the way, like you might hear at a moth story event. Others were telling nursery rhymes or... Jack tales, all kinds of traditional tales. And I heard some poetry as well, like The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service. So I knew poetry was part of the storytelling arena, if you will. So when I came upon Ulysses, I think somewhere in the back of my mind I was thinking, wow, if I memorized a longer poem, I would have a story to tell. I have to say I was a little intimidated by storytelling because I just simply didn't know how to stand on a stage and think of something off the top of my head like so many of those storytellers did. But I figured if I could memorize it, I would have it down. And when I got on stage, I would be able to remember it and wouldn't have to worry about filling in the blanks. And you know what? It worked out pretty much like that. So I memorized Ulysses, finally did manage to get through it, And I decided then, why not memorize a second poem? And another fellow that I knew in Asheville, Bob Falls, said, well, I'll memorize two, and we'll have a show. So that's what we did. And four poems, I guess, equaled about 15 minutes of standing in front of an audience and and presenting the work. I had no idea what I was doing when we finally presented our 15-minute show. And I think we did it a couple of more times just for practice. and. By then, I was still at UNCA, and I had decided to take some acting classes, which kind of helped. I don't know how much it actually helped. And somewhere along the way, we decided to put together a two-hour show, which we did. We memorized two hours' worth of poetry. It took months and months and months, and we finally ended up asking a fellow to direct us. His name was Cal Groshish, and Cal agreed, and we worked and worked and rehearsed and rehearsed. And here's the trick to making something like that a success, if you can call it a trick. We just, like I said, rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and eventually it it became more or less comfortable, and we finally got this two-hour show together, and we invited all our friends to, to come out, and sure enough, we probably had 50, 60 people in the audience. They all paid $3 to get in. We thought we were rich, and... We practiced more and more, and finally the night of the show came round, and I remember stepping out on stage. No paper, all memorized work, absolutely no experience with an audience. And the first thing that happened to me, I, I looked up, and everybody's face looked different. And for some reason, the eyes stand out in my memory, I was so thrown off by all these people looking at me. I don't know why the eyes threw me off so much, but they did. I managed to get through the show. We did a pretty good job. People stood up. They clapped and they they cheered us on. And the most interesting part of the evening after the show was over, a professor from a university in South Carolina approached us and said, I, I loved what you guys did. It was really, really great. Would you like to come to my university and present this to my students? I'll pay you 400 bucks to come down to South Carolina. Well, we were gobsmacked, $400 to to recite poetry. Oh, we were really rich. We thought we were rich with $3 at the door, but $400 to go down to South Carolina. And so a, a few months later, we did that. And that was the beginning of what turned out to be my spoken word poetry career. We ended up calling that business Poetry Alive and ended up memorizing over 500 poems from the school textbook. And we traveled all over the country with other teams that associated with Poetry Alive. Or actually, we hired the performers and trained them and sent them out in Nissans and Mazdas and whatever car we could get our hands on and traveled all over the country. I traveled throughout New England, did a fair number of shows on Long Island and in New York City. And we also went south and west and even all the way out to California. And occasionally, before it was all over with, we ended up going to other countries as well. I, I ended up going to Africa, to West Africa, for a, a teacher's conference in Accra, Ghana. And then was honored to visit the different international schools in in. Accra, I was there, and Senegal, and Mauritania, Cameroon, so it was a really good run throughout the entire time. So somewhere along the way, I decided I might as well try to write a few poems to see what would happen because I had memorized so many pieces. So I I started. Now, I discovered in this beginning stage of trying to write these poems down, that even though I had memorized a lot of poetry, the writing didn't just happen. It was stiff and wooden, and I didn't quite know what I was doing, and I didn't know how to do it, but I better kept at it. And I eventually ended up having a, a style, getting a sense of, of poetry that that worked for me. And along the way, I discovered the Poetry Slam, we're back to the Leaf Festival this past Saturday night. I will tell you, when I first discovered slam poetry, it was by way of Patricia Smith and Ray McNeese, and Alan Wolfe and I were traveling as a team, and I thought I was the best performance boy on earth. Of course, that was quickly shattered when I went to T.T. and the Bears and saw Patricia Smith and Ray McNeese perform their poetry. They were absolutely on point, fantastic totally engaged, had all the skills you could ever imagine. And I was intimidated by it, I admit. I was also drawn to it. I thought, I'd like to try to do that too. And so we continued on with our spoken word momentum in Poetry Live and then established the Poetry Slam in Asheville. And I did end up being a slam poet. I was never a very good one. I didn't get great scores, and I couldn't connect as emotionally as I would like to. I never hit the ball out of the park. And you know what? Nobody really cared. Everybody was happy that I was doing it, just like I was happy that that they were doing their poetry as well. It was indeed a community, no different than the one I experienced with the poets at the Leaf Festival this, this round. It was fantastic. Just like the old days, some things never change. I imagine poetry just doesn't grow old and language doesn't really grow old and emotional engagement never grows old, nor does the idea of reaching out and embracing the people that, that you know. And that's what we did Saturday night at the Leaf Festival. So if you want to be a poet, a spoken word artist, please consider it. All you have to do is speak a few lines, find your rhythm, be yourself. Eventually you will figure it out, and it will become easy. It's all about practice, as I said before. So remember you are a part of all that you have met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world, whose margin fades forever and forever as you move. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you for hearing my story of leaving Taos and coming to Asheville and indulging myself with the poets at the Leaf Festival. And I do appreciate you listening to my little story about how I got involved with poetry and I will tell you I did graduate from UNCA and was very happy to graduate with honors I managed to redeem myself after Brevard College and I was very very proud of that and later in life I went on and got an MFA in poetry from Vermont College so I managed to to get some education along the way as well as a lot of practical experience. So once you start down the road, it's fairly easy to continue on if you just let yourself enjoy the moments that you have poetically that's really all that it amounts to so on that note I would like to say that you've been listening to Twice 5 Miles Radio fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering I'm your host James Nave always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 streaming online WPVMFM.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI cultural energy radio out of Taos New Mexico Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing the radio station, WPVM-FM. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to hear more of Walter's music. If you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com, Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, you can go to my website and contact me through the contact page there. I would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to join me for a writing time on Saturday morning, I always host an imaginative storm writer session on Saturday morning. We gather at noon Eastern time and write for an hour. The group is always fun and we laugh a lot and actually get some some pretty good creative writing done. I have to say I'm impressed with everybody who shows up and I expect I'll be impressed with you if you come visit us. ImaginativeStorm.com. ImaginativeStorm.com. And finally, thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate your time, and I hope you do tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Goodbye, Mr. Ramsey. We did go to the moon.